I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 377. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Say it slowly or else you can't say it at all. Thanks to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. You'll find him at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. You can, of course, find the show at thejazzsession.com, and you can find my poetry blog at jasoncrane.org. Also, please go to iTunes and rate and review the show. It's very simple. Just give it a star rating and also type in a little review, and that helps the show go up in the rankings and makes it easier for others to find it. Well, this is it, folks. This is the last episode of the Jazz Session I'm recording in New York City for who knows how long, maybe ever, maybe months, maybe years. I have no idea. But tomorrow, June 1st, 2012, I leave on my Jazz or Bust tour I'm super excited. In true Jason Crane fashion, I'm not actually even sure which of two cities I'm going to tomorrow, either Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, or Wilmington, Delaware. But in any case, I'll be staying in Wilmington for a couple of days and uh, doing an interview there and then heading to State College, Pennsylvania, where I'll also be doing an interview, and then to Shepherdstown, West Virginia, where I have the first poetry reading of the tour on June 6th in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. That's at 6 p.m. at the Good Natured Market and Vegetarian Cafe. It's actually in Martinsburg, the actual uh, cafe itself. And then on June 12th, I'm reading in Richmond, Virginia at 6 p.m. at Chop Suey Books. In June 17th, I'll be in Nashville, Tennessee at 4 p.m. at the Nashville Jazz Workshop. Also, I think there'll be a reading on June 7th in Washington, D.C., but I'll let you know as soon as I know about that on next week's shows. Now, here's how it's going to work in terms of following the tour. To find out you know, where I am and to see the tour diary from each day and all that stuff, just point your browser to jasoncrane.org. That's my poetry site, but it's going to become the kind of official tour site during all of this stuff. Now, of course, the episodes of the Jazz Session will be at thejazzsession.com, and they'll still be in iTunes, and nothing will change there. So if all you're interested in is hearing the shows that I record while I'm on the road, you don't have to do anything. Just stick with thejazzsession.com, keep your RSS feed going or your iTunes or whatever it is you do, and all of the shows will be right there. You don't have to do a thing. But if you want to get all the other stuff, the tour, the, the recordings of poetry readings and the photos that I take and the interesting stories from the tour itself, uh, for that you'll want to go to jasoncrane.org where I've actually already started my tour diary for the last couple of days here in New York City. Okay? And of course you can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. This is also a great time to join the mailing list. Just go to thejazzsession.com and click on mailing list up at the top and you'll get an email from me each week which will summarize what's been happening and give you links to all of the tour entries and the shows and all that stuff. Also, you can donate to the tour at thejazzsession.com slash tour. That's a great way to help keep the tour going. And also to get some great thank you gifts from t-shirts to postcards from the road to free CDs to books to all kinds of stuff. 
And you can, of course, become a member of the Jazz Session. It is the sustaining members who are keeping me alive while I'm on the road. To do that, go to thejazzsession.com slash join. Today's show features one of my favorite vocalists and uh, also a good friend of mine who is making her recording debut now with an album called Freedom Flight. And we're going to hear the title track, a medley of that, and Blackbird. This is Nikki Shrira. My guest is the vocalist, Nikki Shira. She's got a new album called Freedom Flight. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I should say right off the top, because I think this will be obvious, we know each other, we're friends, and I also have already written a gushing review of this record. So all of You the, have? I, I know. I should send it to you. <laughs> so all of the hardball questions I would normally ask someone on this show, I probably won't ask you. Um, <laughs> but actually, I, I, I want to start with uh, the repertoire on the album, which I guess is an obvious place to start, but it is... The thing, you know, the thing I like most about this record is kind of how fresh it is and how much it doesn't sound like other records that are out. And you seem very fearless in choosing things that that expose you a lot in the music. And I just wanted to ask you about that. Um, I don't think that it's a conscious thing. I don't think that I pick repertoire thinking, what terrifies me? Okay, I'm going to sing that. Let me take that on. I... And I know that the repertoire is varied, that comments come up a lot from various people, various sources, but it's definitely not a conscious thing, which might be part of the reason that for some people it works. I'm sure that for others it doesn't. Um, but for those that it does, maybe it works because it's not a conscious, deliberate decision. It's just about picking songs that I like. When you're saying not conscious, you mean, in other words, it's not some calculating decision to, right. I need this kind of song and this and... Yeah. I mean, I think, I think variety is incredibly important. And my dad always says to me, whenever I have a gig, make sure there's lots of variety. People like variety, because he's the authority on what people like. Don't know if you got the memo. <laughs> um, gosh knows I have. But, but he's right. And, but, I do, but I think in terms of repertoire choice, you can also balance variety just by the way that you line up the songs. So even if you had songs that were similar, depending on how they're arranged, you know, obviously putting them in a certain order will create variety. But the songs themselves, I know, span, you know, different decades, different writers, different styles, different genres. Um, and it's not a deliberate decision. It's 
they're just songs that I like or songs that had been in development for so long that the next logical step for those tunes in question was to record and document them. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly This album, to me, as much as it announces the you know the presence of a singer worth paying attention to, I think it also says a lot about an arranger worth paying attention to. Can you talk a little bit about the arranging on this album, and actually just your your kind of entry into finding interesting ways to present your music? I love arranging, and it's something that has definitely grown and developed since I moved to New York. Um, but even in my undergrad, when I wasn't necessarily composing as much, I would still be fairly fearless when it came to arranging and. I'm still, and back then I certainly was, because I didn't have the theoretical tools that I have now, very orally driven. And it was about what I hear, and I didn't question whether that was jazz or whether that was right, or whether if I used that harmonic progression below that melody, you know, was it right or wrong? And I think that that's great, and I'm better for it, because there's, you, there's who says that something is right or wrong? We know this. And also it meant that creatively I wasn't, I didn't have any, anything stifling me. There were rules and some of them I knew and those that I didn't, I didn't know, but it didn't prevent me from trying out new things. And I also transcribed a lot. Other people's arrangements, there would be songs that I didn't particularly care for. But when I heard, I don't know, you know, Norma Winston's arrangement of one of those songs, suddenly I loved it because it was new and it was fresh. And I would transcribe those arrangements and I would sing those arrangements and always say, this is a Norma Winston arrangement. Did or, you transcribe them so you could see the inner workings, figure out how they no, were No, I together? transcribed them so that I could sing them. Yeah. Um, I wish it was more deliberate a sense of you know let me transcribe them and look at them on five staves and i mean they were also probably transcribed with tons of errors but it was for me it was more about just capturing the the vibe and the atmosphere of the tune and a lot of that had to do from the arrangement even if it was just the basic skeleton of what they were doing um so that's where it kind of started and then when i was forced to compose at manhattan school of music at graduate school and i've always loved composing but i haven't always had enough confidence to do it and to put tunes out there but it was really encouraged at msm and so i had to do it and it bled into how i would arrange and even now i am very i'm a big believer when people say do you write your own music even if i'd never written an original composition i would still feel like saying yes because i feel like arranging is composing you know, you're given some of the materials there, whether it's lyrics or melody or harmonies. But, you know, 
all those building blocks are there, but you're still creating something new. And so for any singer who feels sort of um, anxious about the fact that they're not writing original mu- music, because there's a very, I feel like there's a big light shone on that in jazz today. And I don't always think that it's right. I feel like it's often writing original music for the sake of it. And I mean, who am I to say? But I feel like any singer who feels anxious about that, if they can just get into arranging, I mean, they've already got, you know, at least a leg in the composing pool. I see the two things as really going hand in hand in many respects. So, yeah, so arranging, it's still an oral process for me. I'll sing the melody and I'll hear a bass line and then it's like filling in, coloring in the rest of the picture. What quality is the chord and all of that stuff. And I'm also, there are certain sounds and certain genres that I'm very affected by. I love film scores. And so my, at the moment, I really just want to see how I can take all of the music, all of the tools that are used in film scoring and all of the harmonic progressions that I love and see how I can melt those into, I guess, the jazz idiom or use them to breathe different life into jazz melodies that we know so well. If ever I would leave you, it wouldn't be in summer, seeing you in summer, I never would go. mentioned that before you had the theoretical knowledge that you have now, you found yourself very fearless when it came to song choice and arranging. As you started adding, you know, the these ideas of right and wrong and how harmony works and those kinds of things, how did you combat becoming a more timid or a more conservative arranger? Because I think you're anything but that. Well, I think, I think a lot, clearly. And my, my mind is always filled with with my own sort of inner arguments based on what's going on in jazz and what people are saying about jazz and people in the jazz world, what they think is cool and what they think is not cool. And I'm always weighing up two sides of every argument in my mind. Um, And I, and I, but I think, I think that I was lucky studying 
in South Africa before moving to the States because I do feel like it gave me a sense of being grounded and a sense of knowing who I am. I don't know if I knew who I was musically. I really struggled with that in graduate school, trying to find my shtick and find what I find what my concept was I remember having a tearful call to my mother saying I don't know what I'm doing and I don't know what my sound is I don't know what my concept is to which her response was Nikki tell me about this concept thing how important is it that you find it and I don't know if she just thought I was being incredibly (laughs) esoteric and you know artsy and woe is me and you know palm to the you know back of the hand to the forehead um but it really, it's a, hor- it's, it's a horrible word. And I guess another way of saying it is finding your voice, which is equally <laughs> questionable. But I really had a sense of me, like personality-wise, I knew who I was. So that, I think, grounded me when I was really just writing, you know, high and low, trying to figure out what it was that I wanted to say musically. And that gave me a good sense of if somebody said, oh, you can't do that going, you know, walking away and saying, mm, I don't think that person's right. Or mm, there's no such thing as, you know, that's right, that's wrong, you can, you can't. So I'll do what I want. And I also think that my my mentors played a pivotal role in that, in showing me how rules can help you, but how they don't have to limit you. And really, I mean, it's not Western classical music. And there's a reason that I'm not a Western classical musician. I don't have the discipline and... I also, I, I want to play and I want to be creative and I, and I want to, you know, try, step on rules and kick them to the curb. So, Just based on the two comments you've, you've told us from them so far, I think I'm going to start calling your parents when I have these existential <laughs> life crises. Yeah. I'll put you in your place. <laughs> they, they, sound, they sound very, very useful. Maybe this is the point where we should insert a little biographical sketch for folks um, who are just learning about you right now. So will you talk about uh, where you grew up and then your musical education? Um, I was born in London. My parents are South African. And they moved to England during apartheid. And they had me and my two siblings there. And we moved back in 91, which is when Mandela was released from Robben Island. So I grew up in Cape Town and feel South African and that is home, even though there's a part of me that, you know, has British roots and the accent is thoroughly confused, but, you know, very often it's British and my South African impersonation is horrible. So I grew up in South Africa and I did my undergraduate degree there at the South African College of Music, 
which is at the University of Cape Town. I know nothing about Cape Town and until recently didn't even know that it was two words. So will you say something about Cape Town? <laughs> what, how large a city is it? What's it, what's it like? Google? <laughs> no. um, I don't. I look. I don't. I'm really bad with anybody who knows me knows I'm terrible. A with geog- no. We don't need numbers, but like, is it a, is it a huge city? No. Is it a okay? No, no. It's a small city. It's literally on the southern tip of Africa. We have both coasts, both oceans, um, and it's a great city. Anybody who's never been, I always liken it to San Francisco, Cape Town. Not not South Africa, because there are parts of it which are more built up. Johannesburg is probably closer to Los Angeles in many respects. So Cape Town's, and it's geographically completely gorgeous. Mountains, ocean, winelands, small city center. I mean, it doesn't even come close to, you know, New York or London or Paris, anywhere that's sort of a proper city. Um, And Cape Townians are known for being pretty laid back and pretty chilled, uh, chilled out and you know, they'll skip lectures and go to the beach. And, and it's great. And the weather, it's you don't have any of the extremities. It'll be cold and rainy in winter. Nowhere near as cold as it gets on the East Coast. And in summer, it's warm, sometimes humid. But it's not the unforgiving sort of constant humidity that we have in New York in summer on the East Coast, which we may not get. Thanks, global warming. <laughs> um, so that's... And culturally, Cape Town is interesting. I mean... The support for sports and the patriotism when it comes to sports are huge. I mean, the fact that Clint Eastwood made a movie about it um, kind of proves that. Um, but there's there's a lot of great culture. I mean, there's a lot of great theater. A lot of I have friends who are amazing playwrights and who are really, I think, changing the face of sort of South African theater and the topics that are being covered. Um, and I, you know, unbiasedly, I think I have friends who are incredible musicians and South African jazz, which is kind of a offshoot of the jazz genre as a whole, is a whole nother, you know, thing to be explored. And the musicians who are the legends of South African jazz are just some of the most mind-blowing people. And some, some, I mean, some of them are better known in the world. People like Abdullah Ibrahim, who lives in the States. Um, people like Bekiem Seleku. Who also who didn't who passed away recently and wasn't in South Africa, um, and then a lot of local people like Winston Mankunku and Victor and Tony and um, Sibungila Kumalo, who's played with people like Danilo Perez and Jack DeJanet. So there's a lot of it's a small world, but a lot of people aren't just aren't aware of South African jazz and how it you know seeps into the larger jazz picture. Um, but yeah, so that's my that's my biographical info. And then I moved here two and a half years ago. And why did you decide to come to the States? Well, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a pre-planner in that when I was at UCT, I knew that I was I was a sax major in my first year, a tenor saxophonist and classical piano double major. And the piano died by the end of my second year because I just felt too, I had the most incredible teacher and I felt so incredibly guilty that I wasn't practicing and he never rebuked me and he was always lovely and he's just amazing. But I felt horrible and I would find myself practicing, I don't know, like Bach preludes and thinking, oh, I really should be practicing that Charlie Parker song. And it's just that being torn between the two things was awful. So, and I was never going to be a classical concert pianist. I know you think that I was, but... (laughs) I have, I'm really sorry to say that no. So 
classical piano died out and also and i i loved the saxophone but i still have a really big mental block when it comes to improvising on it and so that kind of ruined my relationship with the instrument i could read and i loved playing in ensembles i loved playing in big bands and all of all of the teamwork that you kind of got from being a horn player but the improvising thing just i just couldn't but you know if you'd asked me to sing things i could sing them a few lines or you know scat or any anything so i could do it but there was some weird block going from my head to my fingers and my mother used to say well if you just practiced more you'd enjoy it more and then i used to turn around oh i must i still am a difficult child but my poor mother i used to turn around and say yeah but i should want to practice you know it's a circ it's a cyclical thing so you can't just it doesn't work that way in my mind and then she just you know exhale loudly and leave the room <laughs> so many a battle was fought um they were not resolved but anyway so i changed to being a vocal major in my second year and i had a lot of catching up to do because i didn't have the technique that the other singers had i had all of the kind of jazz oral skills because of playing the sax so that was great and something that i'll always be appreciative of the saxophone and my sax teacher for um but i i wanted to sing so i changed to being a singer spent a lot of time doing classical technique in fact all the remaining 3 years i chose to stay with the classical teacher that I had who she was amazing and um yeah so I had a lot of catching up to do but because I was so behind and because I suddenly really loved the instrument that I was learning and playing or using I made deliberate choices and set deliberate goals about going to summer camps and I was also the the singers that I listened to the most were all American singers. It was Kate McGarry and Tierney Sutton. I loved Jane Monite. I still do. Um and Stacy Kent, who although she's American, she's based in Europe in in London. So I decided that I wanted to go and learn with these people if I could and go to summer camps. And so from that from quite early on then I started fostering my own love for America and the jazz scene here. and it's very different to the jazz scene back home which is great but i felt like there was more of a place for my voice in in the us just because of the the kind of voice that i have which is not particularly you know i can't belt and it's not particularly low and all of those things i just thought well you know i felt like i saw eye to eye more with someone like Kate McGarry and you know would and really wanted to learn and explore what I could learn from her. So for that reason I set myself my sights on the state and I had some really great experiences here doing Jazz in July which Sheila Jordan was teaching there at the time and Stanford Jazz Workshop which is where I met Madeline Eastman and Randy Porter. And it was just really great and so I went back home and finished studying always thinking okay well I'd like to carry on studying with Kate McGarry who at that time was at Manhattan School of Music. So that's when people ask about choosing graduate schools I always say don't choose the school for the location choose it for the teacher. You know identify who the teachers are that you want to learn with and then see where they're teaching whether it's summer camps whether they teach privately or whether they're at you know a tertiary institution and you want to go and get a degree or another degree wow 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 
you to say more about three people uh kate who you just mentioned kate mcgarry uh, who's been on this show a couple times and also peter eldridge who's also been on this show and also uh bobby mcfarren if you can say something about those three people and they're they are in different relationships to you but i think they all have uh have impacted what we hear on freedom flight oh okay well kate i first met in 2007 because i came over to the states did some summer camps and then emailed some people who I, whose music I loved and who I thought they'd be really cool people to learn from privately. And at that time, it was Gretchen Palato and Dominique Ede, who's in Boston, and Kate. And I had a bunch of her albums, and I remember being completely just thrilled when she emailed back. And the whole idea that there's somebody that you respect and really just adore so much in terms of what they do artistically the idea that you can reach out to them with an email and that they'd respond to you and that they're real people and it sounds completely bonkers but it is so true especially in the jazz world and i still even today you know even to this day experience that I, mean, I do weekly. too. Yeah, exactly. That's you know what exactly makes this show fun mean. for me. I mean, I have people's phone numbers right. in my address book that I really can't believe. How I wild! Have. Yeah, <laughs> it's so. It's just. It's. But it's so funny because it's just a phone number and they're just another person. It's like it's. It's so funny when you kind of analyze how we react to things. And so Katie emailed back and said she taught privately, and so I met with her in New York, and we had a lesson. And that's when she said, you know, what was I planning on doing? And I said, well, I'd like to come to the States and study, and these are the schools I'm looking at, which at the time I think it was New England Conservatory MSM and maybe Thornton School of Music, because at the time Cheney Sutton was still teaching there at USC. And Kate said, oh, well, I teach at Manhattan School of Music. And they hadn't updated their website, so I didn't know this. So it was like Christmas, you know, in the middle of July. Um and I thought, well, that would be really, really cool. So she's a, she's the reason that I came, that I applied to MSM. And she was there. I mean, even she was there at my live audition. And it was only after that that she left. Um, so, which was sad, but it was still, I still got to learn with her because she'd come back every now and then. And, you know, often she'd sub for the teachers there and, 
so I got to learn with her then and also and just I mean she's constantly in and out of the city and so you bump you know you get to go to her gigs and bump into her and I've emailed with her and I I always say to her you know thank you men for mentoring me from even from afar because it's amazing what you can do just through you know letters or phone calls or you know and the advice that you can give to someone is huge so she's just amazing and it, I mean if you ask any singer I think in this city you know do you love Kate? It's just, you know, an unequivocal yes. She's kind of a mother, a jazz mother to so many. And that's evident when you go to her gigs. They are filled with singers who just adore her and, you know, want to hear her sing. And she's a very powerful performer. So from that perspective, I just will always, you know, be very, very grateful. And I, I hope that she'll always be a, one of my mentors. Um, and then meeting her and her leaving MSM meant that I ended up learning with Peter, um, which, which I never thought it was a bad thing, which is great. I never thought, oh, no. I thought, okay, cool, because I had Peter's music as well, loved it. And he's, if you've met him, he just gives off such a wonderfully warm sort of vibe. And he's, you just immediately warm to him. So I, so I was learning with Peter and we just clicked. I mean, it's it's really so... Inc- it's incredibly lucky. It was kind of a silver lining of Kate leaving was just because Peter and I just get get along so well. We got along so well and we still do. And it was great because it was a real student-teacher relationship at first. And then over the two years, by the time I graduated, it was like a mentor, mentory, sort of slightly more adult version. Um relationship and I I just I just adore Peter and I also just cannot deny the positive influence that he's had on my sort of musical journey everything I mean there's so much of what I do I would bring you know ideas to a lesson and I knew before he'd even heard them that certain bars would make him squeal with delight and he'd say oh my gosh I love that chord or, you know, even now sometimes he'll say things, he'll say, oh, that's such a Nicky progression or that's such a Nicky chord. But really I'm thinking it's also very like Peter tinged, you know, harmonic progression or something. So I just think, well, I just think we're, I just think I'm lucky in that I really, really loved his music and just, I kind of, I just got his aesthetic and, and, really loved it so i think that if there's anything of that in my music well i'm just super lucky But you know it wasn't written for you 
Tell me how can you stand there with your broken heart, ashamed of playing the fool? One thing can lead to another. It doesn't take any sacrifice. Father and mother and sister and brother. If it feels nice, don't think twice. Shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you feel. Things are gonna work out fine if you only will. And you've said things to me.、Uh, we've we've seen quite a number of shows together, and、mm. uh, you often make comments that I would never think of about, you know, for example, how. How, as a singer, you think about carrying yourself on stage, or even the way you move, or the way you move your hands while you sing, or、um, you know how people stand, or does it change if they sit down at an instrument, or if they're standing up when they sing, and a lot of that extra musical stuff. That you, well, it's not extra musical, but it's not、uh, you know it's not the notes and chords; it's the other the physical part of making music.、Uh, some of that stuff. To me, you've attributed to studying with Peter and things that he would talk about presentation. Absolutely, I mean. I think in presentation, presentation is very important. But in the same way that you want to think about it, you don't want to overthink it because then it becomes affectation and it becomes just you become painfully aware of yourself, and the audience is painfully aware of that, and it's just a mess and uncomfortable, and no one is fun.、Um, but Peter definitely spoke about things. One of the classes that he taught us was, you know, accompanying ourselves, even in the most simple way, and you know, watching out for you know the mic, and especially when you're sitting down and playing the piano and things like that. And but Peter's also a very good technician. Like his methodology just really, really worked for me.、Um, And a lot of it had to do with you know you're moving your head excessively you know and it's going to affect the whole machine of what you're doing and it's not necessary and so being aware of things like that which then affect you know how you look when you're performing as well as the sound and what you can create vocally.、Um, so he's I, yeah and I think a lot of that stuff is technical because I think you know we we move or we have hand gestures or we slouch and whatever and it just it all feeds back into. Our actual instrument, and how much control we have over the sound we create, and what what the sound is, and how healthy it is, and all of that. So Pete has been very, very pivotal in I mean my development in all areas, technically, musically. One of my favorite musicians, favorite singers, favorite thinkers about music is Bobby McFerrin, and、uh, one of the coolest experiences I've had in New York was、uh, actually with you. Standing on a street corner while you sang the acapella version of、um, Paul McCartney's "Blackbird" that Bobby McFerrin arranged, and which people can also、uh, hear on this record, and uh, uh, there's just there's something about the the way he approaches music with kind of his entire being. Like you feel like there's not in a histrionic way, but just in a way that feels incredibly genuine, and like you're getting the whole depth of the person that he is when he performs.、Um, And I know that I know that he's someone whose music is important to you, and also that you studied with people who have kind of been in his his orbit. I wonder if you could talk about that a little. He is just the most amazing person. I think about it almost daily. I think, how does he do what he does the way he does it? Because it doesn't matter which continent you see him in concert in, or which month, or which season, or what day of the week, he will be, you know, dressed comfortably. Usually, like blue jeans and a mauve T-shirt or something, black T-shirt or a purple T-shirt, 
if he has his way barefoot on stage and he will be completely without affectation and warm and just completely i mean there are words there are almost there aren't words to describe it because he's not superhuman that's the thing about it which is so amazing and wonderful about him is that he's so incredibly human and so incredibly normal and he you know likes a hamburger and you know he told us once about a gig he did with i think it was chick career at the blue note and afterwards they said to everyone you know follow us down the street we'll take you off ice cream and throngs of people followed them out down the street but the ice cream place was closed and he thought it was hysterical and yeah he's just i mean where does he come from he's wonderful and i think his whole attitude about music is is mirrored by his kind of not relaxed because that implies a kind of sort of n- not caring about things and he does and he's incredibly disciplined and incredibly talented but focused beyond belief but i just think his attitude about music and the idea that it's supposed to be fun and it's supposed to be inclusive it's not supposed to be exclusive and it's supposed to bring people together and it's supposed to make people feel something that is mirrored in his personality, which is just one of warmth and extreme generosity. Um, and like so many other people, I'm a huge, a huge, huge, huge fan and admirer. Um, and I guess I kind of not parlayed that, but Oprah Winfrey has that thing where you put intentions out into the universe and that they happen if you do that or you write them down somewhere and, you know, put that piece of paper away for a rainy day. Well, I don't know if I did the same thing with Bobby, but I definitely, you know, kind of put it on my bucket list of would love to meet Bobby or would love to be one of those people who volunteers at his concerts and gets to sing with him for, you know, one minute. Um, Or if he's leading a course, would love to be at that course. And so I kind of was lucky, really just really fortunate enough to do those things. Um, And he he led a course at Omega, which is up in Rhinebeck, Rhinebeck, New York. Um, which was wonderful for a number of reasons. Firstly, because there were a huge amount of singers of varying levels and varying interests. And I think most of them were probably not musicians, which was great. And he brought the faculty were all sort of former members of his voiceistra. So they were all, I guess you could say, Bobby McFerrin disciples, or at least they preached the Bobby McFerrin gospel. Well, I don't know. Um, And so that was really cool just to see how it sort of bled into other people's styles and what they did. And one of the people who was teaching was an amazing singer called Rhiannon Watson, who was at Berkeley at the time. And I think she's still on faculty there, maybe as an artist in residence. And she runs her own courses and she calls herself an improviser, which to me has been something I'm thinking a lot about recently. Um, she doesn't call herself a jazz musician. And even Bobby, I, don't, I think Bobby probably also calls himself an improviser, um, which is wonderful because people get so bogged down by genres and they get so boxed in and it defeats the whole purpose of what music is about. And at the end of the day, it's all music. Um, so she calls herself an improviser and she has her own, a whole sort of methodology, exercises that she's developed over the years using all the students at Berkeley that she's taught as kind of, you know, guinea pigs. And and she runs a whole bunch of private courses and there are kind of varying degrees of the intensity of each course and how long they'll be. Um, so I 
so I went the, the Omega course was the end of last year. And I thought, well, I really would love to study more with Rhiannon because I was so intrigued by her. She's the most enigmatic, magnetic performer. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And she has this group called We Be Three with Joey Blake, who's also at Berkeley, and David Worm, who's, I mean, he was in Voicester as a, as a tenor. But now, more often than not, he's a vocal percussionist. And in fact, he did all the vocal percussion on Bobby McFerrin's Vocabularies album. And it's just, I mean, I, I laugh with kind of disbelief thinking about the stuff that he does. And you'll be singing in a room with a whole bunch of singers and you'll hear this, you'll hear a full drum kit. And you'll look around and it's Dave with a microphone hands by his side like it's just ridiculous (laughs) the sounds he can make and he tried to teach us some stuff and it's just hysterical um he's amazing so she is a group with the two of them called we be three and i just not not enough people have seen the group or know about the group and it's just amazing and rihanna's incredible in that and her she actually has a drama background and so learning with her that was something else that really was reiterated to me was the sense of theatrical in in the act of singing and delivering a song and you don't want it to be overly theatrical i think that's when it kind of it teeters on that line of being cabaret which again it's so unfortunate that 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 phrase cabaret or that word has such negative connotations because if people do it well it's amazing it's just when people don't do it well or if people sing and it's too theatrical and people aren't sure how to what box to put it in, then it's cabaret. So it's negative. But um, when she performs, I mean, there's just she's so quick on her toes. And I think a lot of that also comes from sort of theater and drama improvising exercises. Um, and she's amazing. So I can't rave enough. Um, but I got so I got to learn with her at the beginning of this year. And I just did a kind of refresher course. She's in New York for the weekend now. And she's so, she's just amazing, inspirational, and also incredibly generous. Because when it comes to her methodology, and I know she's in the midst of finishing up a book, she she never says to anybody, oh, I don't want you teaching my method, or, or you know, or I, I think you need to come and learn with me more before you go and tell people that this is how I, this is my exercise, whatever. As she said, and she said this on Friday, she said, People, you know, you all need to, you know, share this and spread this and more people need to learn about improvising and, you know, it needs to be introduced into schools and, and it's, it's, you know, she's just, she thinks big. So she's amazing.
Will you say something about uh, that idea of inclusiveness and how you apply that in your own performances? How do you help bring the audience in with you to what you're doing? I think a big part of that, it's not, again, it's not something that was sort of intentional at first, but it's something that other people brought to my attention. And by other people, I mean my mother and my father who come to my gigs. No, they, I remember my dad saying to me, at first he was quite tough with me. He was like, you need to be careful about what you say in between songs. You need to work on it. And if need be, I think, you know, you should, you should write it down. You should actually pre-plan it. And I was very against this because I was like, no, that's unnatural and it's trite. And What does your father do for a <laughs> He advises his middle child. <laughs> <laughs> Every time he gives me advice, I give him a penny. No, um, he's very, look, he's very good with language. He's incredibly intelligent and... He's a bank robber or something, right? That's why you're not telling me. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. why you're not answering the question. Exactly. He's on the lamb right now. What is your actual right. last name? And why did you choose a pseudonym <laughs> that no one can pronounce? <laughs> oh, gosh. So anyway, so yeah, your, your so father told you to be more careful about what you said. He said to be more careful. Yeah. And I, I mean, I hate... I, I don't mind being criticized, but when it comes... My, when my father criticizes me, it's a little... It's, it's a bit of a bitter pill to swallow. And there's always resistance but more often than not he's right um and he said you know you, you just should... said that on tape you i know, know. he's he can, gonna love he's that he's gonna isolate this little bit of the interview and it'll <laughs> be his play it on loop. more often than <laughs> yes. not he's right more often than not he's right more often... <laughs> that's right it's gonna be the ringtone for whenever you call now exactly. <laughs> that's exactly what i would do with it so um but he said you need to you need to be you need to plan out just because just because it's not flowing and you lose audience sort of um focus when you ramble and he was right. And so there were times where I'd write out things or there were times where I'd go through the set list in my mind and I would think about, you know, a point I was going to say for each song. And I mean, clearly, I don't have a problem with talking, but it's a different context when you're on stage and you're introducing something and you want it to be personal. You don't want it to be too personal. I mean, I've heard singers who say things and I just sort of sort of scooch down on my chair and put my head in my hands and think, oh, TMI, you know, like way too much information and and there's a there's an air of intrigue it sounds it sounds a little bit pretentious but i think that that's important because that's always been there you know sort of dating back and back in time and i and i don't think that's necessarily bad you know things like the band not milling around before the gig it's not that the band thinks they're better than the audience. It's that you just, you know, the audience has come there to be entertained. And it's not the same thing as having a dinner party and one person gets up and pulls out their banjo and the other person, you know, pulls out a djembe drum. I'd like to be at that party. But, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, you go to different parties. Yeah. Than I do what, where? <laughs> this must be a South African thing. Um, but it, it, there's a level of formality that exists and I think it exists for good reason. And anyway, so I think that that's part of the inclusive is talking to the audience in between songs. A lot of musicians, a lot of instrumentalists don't do that. Some people are fine with that. I mean, I've, I've had debates with friends of mine who are pianists or sax players who say, no, you know, I, I'm not going to do that. I don't think it's cool. Or I think the music speaks for itself. And, it's, you know, the music's not precious. It's, it's music. It's fun. It's supposed to make someone feel it. And it, feel something and if you can give them if you can preface the song with a story that helps the person connect to the song or it maybe gives them some insight which means they can 
you know, think about the song in a different way. I think that that's valuable. And I think it's inclusive. Yes, everybody, I mean, everybody ultimately is going to think for themselves. So it doesn't matter if you tell them that you wrote this song for your pet turtle dove, you know, they'll do with that what they want. That's up to them. But offer them that information because maybe it will affect how much they enjoy it or how much they don't. So I think that's one way of being inclusive. And also it makes them feel like they're part of the journey. If you don't talk to your, I think, if you don't talk to your audience and you just do a run on set where each song, you know, plays after the next without any verbal communication with them, regardless of your instrument, I just, I wouldn't want to be at that gig. I mean, that's another good thing, you know, to ask yourself is to say, well, how would you feel at that gig if that's how the person did something? Or how would you feel being at a gig if the singer spoke and what she spoke about was, you know, I don't know, her parents divorced on her third birthday? Like, that's something that we don't, I mean, I wouldn't really want to know about unless it was done in a humorous way. I don't, you know, I don't know. But if the person said, you know, this song dates back to 1920, and did you know that the person who wrote it was married to their aunt? That I want to know. You picked the most bizarre <laughs> examples. I'm not good on my toes, which is why I map out what I write. Oh, your dad was so speak. right. Oh, there we my go. God. But um, yeah, so I think that's one way to include people. And the other way, and something my dad always says, apart from that, there must always be variety. Why shouldn't I interview him? I'm not really sure. You should sure. interview him. You guys Except for the plane time. ticket, I think. It's uh, <laughs> the only reason you're on the show. He would, um, the other thing he always said is play songs people know. And uh, lucky for him, I wasn't composing a lot of original tunes when I was still um, living at home. So that wasn't really an issue because all the songs I was doing were either American Songbook or maybe I'd dip into, you know, Joni Mitchell. And, and it was always fun for me to you to take pop songs, rock songs or songs that were kind of commercially known. So really well known and to try and bring them into the jazz idiom. Um, that was always fun because it's always a real thrill to see the the reaction on people's faces when they think, you know, what? She said the song was, you know, Yellow Submarine. I'm not sure I'm hearing it. And then when you come in with the melody, the way, you know, it was sung, but everything else is different and they, you know, they're on, they just, you know, you take them for a ride. Some people don't like it. I know I, I arranged Joni Mitchell's song and a reviewer said, you know, I mean, basically that I think she thought I mangled it. And it was sacrilegious. And, and look, I mean, with Joni Mitchell, you've got to be careful, perhaps. But at the same time, you know, you can't please everyone. And I don't think that's a reason to make certain music off limits, you know, and to say, no, I'm not going to touch that because too many people really, you know, love Britney Spears. And if I take that song and they don't like it, then, you know, you can't win them all. Anyway, so, yeah, so that those are my views on inclusivity. I think that contact with the audience is the way to bring them into the music. I mean, unless you want to have a full-on sing-along. <laughs> you can also which I encourage. <laughs> right. I know, which is why I don't like you coming to my gigs, because yes. you just break so, into song, and I'm like, singing. no, Jason, we're going to the uh, bridge. It's just so inspiring. Wrong time. Da-da-da. <laughs> 
Will you mention uh, who's on this album with you? Yes. Oh, yes. Um, oh, sorry. Time's up. <laughs> this album, they're all really, really good friends of mine, which I feel very lucky about. And that's something that's very important to me when playing with people. So Nick Paul is on piano. Sam Anning is on double bass. And Jake Goldbass is on drums and, and a bit of percussion. And then we have some guests on various tunes. Paul Jones plays tenor sax on two of them. Jay Ratman plays clarinet on another two. Brian Adler, who's a, a dear friend, plays percussion. We do a duet, him and myself and myself. There are a couple of vocal lines and he's on percussion. And then Peter Eldridge plays piano on one tune and he sings on another. Are the people on the record mostly people that you met at Manhattan School? Yeah. Yeah, they are. Um, Nick, Sam, and Jake, the kind of core rhythm section. Nick was in my year, in my class. Sam was the year below us, master's, and Jake was in his undergraduate when we were there, finishing up his undergraduate degree. So I met them at Manhattan School of Music, and we started playing about six months before I graduated, which is part of the reason why it just, I mean, it was a bit of a no-brainer in terms of having them on the album because they played my final recital with me. They'd played a lot of this music. They were responsible for a lot of the way that a lot of the music had developed. Um, and I knew that they shared my aesthetic and I knew that I liked the choices they made. So I didn't need to micromanage and I really trusted them and knew that the decisions they'd make would make the music better and really make it sort of more magical. And then Jay and Paul were also in my year, um, and they were two horn players that I just really loved. And Jay's one of the few people I know who's an incredible clarinetist, um, who's schooled in jazz and is clarinetist. So he was just wonderful. And Paul's great. The funny thing about Paul is every time we do a gig, I look at him afterwards and I say, we are just, I mean, we are just so different. He really, I mean, he's a horn player, he's an instrumentalist. The things he hears I could never hear, let alone sing. You know, the the way he can take something, he can take a pair, you know, a set of chords and play all these things off of it that are just so crunchy but delicious and then bring it back home so you have that kind of sort of tension and release that whole thing going. Um, he's amazing. And it's so funny because friends of mine will say, really, you're playing with Paul? I can't imagine like his aesthetic, his musical choices kind of working with yours. But they do, because Paul goes where I couldn't go in a million years. And when we play in unison, we play in unison. So it's kind of like home base. So it's pretty, it's very special there. Like he just lets rip and it, it's, it works. So it's pretty cool. And Brian, I met on a train when I moved to the city. And we were going down to the village and there was this guy. And I just moved and it was kind of the spirit of 
make new friends. It lasted all of five seconds because afterwards I was like, I don't want to make new friends and this is so hard, you know, being in a new place. <laughs> so Brian's lucky that I met him in that window period of seize the day, carpe diem. And he had a symbol bag. So I thought, oh, well, there's a conversation starter. Are you a drummer? Yes. What kind of drums do you play? Jazz drums. I thought, oh, okay, not bad. Um, and so I said, oh, are you going to a gig? And he said, yes. And he said, what do you do? I said, I'm a singer. He's like, oh, I said, I've just moved here for school. And so he basically just lined up the fact that he'd gone to New England Conservatory and we knew all of these people. And in fact, I think I'd seen him play already before I met him on the train. Um, I can't remember. I don't know if it was with his group, which is Prana Trio or I don't know what. But anyway, so we just we became friends through that. And he was like, yeah, call me. We should do a session. And I mean, the whole idea of sessions was a pretty novel and foreign concept to me because back home, it's such a small industry that it's kind of a luxury just to get together with friends and jam with no promise of a gig or, you know, a gig fee at the end of that. And people are so busy that, you know, they're spread so thin, they don't have time to do that. Here, it's like there are so many musicians and only so many gigs and only so many hours a day. So... You know, people are getting together and jamming all the time. Um, so he was like, yeah, cool, we'll do a session. And I was like, what, what? I remember sending him an email and being like, so I'd like to plan a session. I mean, it was, it was like an alien. It was, <laughs> it's, when I think back on it now, I just think, oh gosh, poor naive girl. Um, and I don't even think we managed to set up a session. But then I did get a gig and I booked him for that gig. So we played together um, quite a bit. So he was a friend, not at MSM, but still someone I met um, while at school. And then Peter, obviously, sure. MSM all the way. I want to ask you um, about rhythm. You seem to me like a, a singer who is really intensely aware of what's happening in the rhythm section. And your own singing strikes me as you know, really using what's under you rhythmically and often creating your own, you know, your own rhythm either in, you know, kind of in – intentional opposition to what's happening sometimes so i just wanted to ask you a little bit about how you about rhythm and how you feel uh your your rhythmic sense works that's very nice of you to say um i don't know if it's something i think about i do i use a lot of intuition and i'm learning i mean it's a lifelong thing of just learning to trust your gut so when you know you hear a phrase whether it's melodically or rhythmically and you kind of want to sing it in that way that you just do it as opposed to thinking but wait you know what about the time signature and well time signature is important but or you know wait what what about you know the drum groove and is it going to fit in and whatever usually you're listening you're taking everything in regardless so you should just go with your gut um i don't was there a specific song that you were thinking of in particular kind of just you know sing i look i mean i will say the one thing for rhythm for me lyrics are incredibly important mm. and they not only dictate how i'll arrange or rearrange a piece or how i'll harmonize it reharmonize it um but they also will end up dictating the rhythm of a phrase or you know the chorus or whatever it is because one of the first things i was taught when i started having lessons was you know sing the way you would speak and if you're not sure how to phrase something, say the line of the melody, you know, I don't know, I wish you bluebirds in the spring. You wouldn't say, I wish you bluebirds, you know, that sort of thing. Sure. So that um, helps a lot with the rhythmic thing in terms of if there's a lot going on rhythmically in the drums and the bass and the piano, if I just want to kind of float over it, then I almost kind of forget about them. 
and just try and say it the way I would speak it, sing it the way I would speak it. Well, and there seemed to be uh, this, I'm sure I'll get in trouble as soon as I say this out loud, but like looking at the comparison between Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday strike me as two ends of a spectrum where one, uh, Billie, is incredibly focused on the lyric and the kind of technical performative aspect of the song comes after telling the story in the song. And then, and uh, I'm making, I'm sure, horrible generalizations, but then in Ella's Ella's case, uh, there are times when it seems like she could be singing anything. It almost doesn't matter what the lyrics are, what the songs are, because she's using them much in the way a horn player would. Just, those are just the, those are just, they're just like notes. The words are just like notes. They're just a vehicle to launch into the improvisation. And it sounds from what you just said, like maybe you're more on the, well, and from what I've heard also, you're more on the telling the story end of things. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you said that. I think that jazz needs more people who are brave. Um, and I, and I, I can also say that because I happen to agree with you. <laughs> yeah, you're going to get a whole bunch of emails. I agree with you. And it's actually, it's funny because recently there's this Cole Porter song that I got hung up on called After You. And the lyrics are actually are pretty, I don't know if they're melancholy, but they're, you know, after you, who will supply my sky of blue? After you, who will I love? You know, the idea that, you know, if you can't have that one person that you love, after them, you know, there's really, there's no, there's not much point. So it's quite sad in a way. And I remember I found the most incredible version by Helen Merrill with like lush strings and it's completely amazing and heartbreaking and her voice sounds phenomenal. And then I found a version by Ella, which I bought without even listening to it because, oh, you know, it's the Ella syndrome. Oh, it's Ella Fitzgerald. <laughs> and it was completely underwhelming. And it was the swing, you know, chingling-a-ling thing. And I was like, that has, excuse my language, but bugger all to do with the lyrics. And I don't listen to it because I love the melody and I love the harmonic progression. But part of the reason I love the song is because it's Cole Porter and because his lyrics are so genius. And when I hear Ella's version of that song, I don't listen to the lyrics. And in fact, I don't love the melody and the harmonies enough for that to be the, the centerpiece of the song. And so, I mean, that's an exact example of what you just said, where, you know, her voice sounds great and mellifluous, and, but, you know, she could be singing Twinkle Little Star. Um, so I, I agree with you on that. Um, I think Billie Holiday is great. I do. I mean, I think for me, the person that I probably think of the most when it comes to lyrics is Blossom Deary. Mm. I just thought she was so just brilliant in the way she delivered things. And when lyrics, a lot of her lyrics are very humorous. And, you know, the way that they were sung was just, I mean, perfection. Or even looking at someone like Joni Mitchell, where in many yeah. cases, the I mean, the lyrics are the composition. I mean, there's music, and the music is amazing, and her voice is, I think, incredible. Yeah. But the words are, I mean, her she's actually her songs are like little novels. I mean, they're you know they're kind of Dylan-esque in that yeah. way, where there's so much content fit in there, right. and you just, you know, you can't imagine. Like, I think of the effect. I'm forming this in my head as we speak, but on the on the album she did with Mingus and the arrangement she did of Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. Yeah. And the incredible lyrics that she wrote for that. And it takes what is already a powerful piece of music and it adds, I think, so much weight to it because she tells such an incredible story in that short time. And I, I find that really affecting. Sometimes I love – I mean I, I love Ella Fitzgerald and there are many times when right. that like just all guns blazing swing is exactly what I want to hear. 
But if I want to hear something that hits me in other places than just hooray, there are other people that I'll go to because right. I want to hear people who are going to dig into what's beneath the song. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. That was mostly just a big philosophical statement. Uh, so if people want to hear the way uh, – amen. Now we'll pass the basket. Uh, if people want to hear the way you interpret things live, you have a CD release show coming up here in New York City. Will you talk about that? Yeah. We have a release show on Wednesday the 6th of June at Cornelia Street Cafe in the West Village. It's Bleecker and Cornelia. And it's at 8.30 p.m., and we have the full band that was on the album, which is pretty special because those guys are busy beyond belief. So I feel like I've, you know, hit gold and it's all downhill from there. Um, but we're going to be doing songs from the album and some new songs. And um, it'll, yeah, we'll, we'll do one sort of long set and we'll have copies of the album for sale. Say the date and time again. Wednesday, the 6th of June, 6 at 8.30 p.m. One more time? <laughs> yes. Now say it in English. <laughs> <laughs> Wednesday, the 6th of June, 8.30 p.m. Cool. We found a word that Nikki can't say. Uh, <laughs> there are also shows in farther fun places. I can't say that. Farther fun places. Yes. That's my favorite kind of place. Let's do that again. <laughs> Three, two. I know you're also going on tour in South Africa, which I've already had to ask you this question three times because I can't say any of the other words in it. So tell me about the tour in South Africa. Thank you. So we're going on tour in South Africa. Thank God. In six weeks. You are right. Ching, ching, ching. Um, and it's a group. I'm going with a friend of mine from school, a wonderful alto saxophonist or saxophonist. If you're not a wanker, go. <laughs> go. <laughs> It is that governess. <laughs> a wonderful guy called Jonas Gunzemuller, um, who's originally from Germany via Amsterdam and then was at school with me here and lives in New York. We've put together a group called the New York South Africa Collective, and it comprises us, Nick Paul, who's the pianist on my album and Jonas's latest album, um, Shane Cooper, who's a South African bass player, and Bobby Petrov, who's a Bulgarian drummer living in Amsterdam. Very confusing. So we're Which part all... of the New York South Africa connection is he? Let's not split hairs now, Jason. <laughs> so we're going to be traveling to South Africa and we're going to be doing um, gigs in Cape Town on the 24th of June, 26th of June, and then playing at the Standard Bank Jazz Festival, which is in Grahamstown, which is the Eastern Cape. Our gigs are the 29th of June and the 2nd of July. But that jazz part of the festival runs from the 27th of June. It's a lot of dates. Till the 3rd of July. <laughs> but all this stuff's on my website. I was just going to say, for those of you who haven't memorized this, Nikki, unlike many people, actually has an up-to-date website. So you can uh, you can find that in the show notes at thejazzsession.com. It's automatically playing music. Jason's <laughs> yes. favorite. Thank you so much. <laughs> my guest is Nikki Schreira. <laughs> Though in the States, we pronounce it in a host of different ways. Uh, her new album is called Freedom Flight, which I actually can say. And it's, uh, you know, I love this record. I highly recommend to everyone listening to, to this uh, interview that they go check out this record because I think it's, it's one of the best vocal records that's come out in a while. And I thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Do 
That's music from Nikki Schreira and her album Freedom Flight. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Don't forget, the tour starts tomorrow, June 1st, when I head to either Philadelphia or Wilmington. I'll figure it out in the morning. And also, I will be in, as I mentioned, Shepherdstown, West Virginia, actually in, in Martinsburg on June 6th for a poetry reading, on June 12th in Richmond, Virginia, June 17th in Nashville, Tennessee, and I think in June 7th in Washington, D.C. Uh, just watch jasoncrane.org for all the details, and of course, stick with the jazz session for the shows that I produce on the road. And meanwhile, get out there and support live jazz wherever and whenever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.